Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. I have entrusted CPI for, for years already. Um, I know most people in the traditional finance use that as a metric on the regular, but uh, after all the different so-called adjustments that have been made to the formula used to determine the CPI, I just um, I just don't trust it. There's too many incentives for the government to fiddle with those numbers for me to feel like... Uh, that they're accurate there's there's guys that actually track inflation based upon the original metrics before they started fucking changing everything you know replacing high grade meat with hamburger meat things like there's little little things that they do that they claim makes it more accurate but to me it's just manipulation mark yusko posted this morning the shadow stats or whatever and it shows about 17% because, you know, Greg Foss put out a, I'm sure, rhetorical question about what is the real number. <laughs> well, um, I my, <laughs> just this last week in, in Miami for the conference, we're over at the little beach kind of cafe thing and we had lunch. And it was like I had a regular entree, nothing amazing. In fact, it was kind of crappy. And then my girl had an entree and 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 she got like a, a tropical drink. And the bill was eighty-two dollars. For two for two. Wow. For two people. <laughs> and and like nothing amazing about the lunch. In fact, it was kind of bad. Yeah, not a fancy lunch. It was totally cost. Coffee that we had a coffee one day at the same place. It was like $35 just for, it was nuts. This is crazy, Alex. I got to share this. So I, my meal for one wasn't quite that bad, but a hamburger was like $17. I had, this is horrible in one sense, but I had a fly get into my drink. I literally had to talk to them about six minutes to try to get them to replace my drink. It's like replacing that drink was going to take them over the edge, right? Of making money on that meal. <laughs> It's so ridiculous. Miami? Yes, Miami Beach. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Good morning, guys. Morning, D. Morning, Terrence. What's going on, D? Hey, not much. Just uh, not FOMOing, but uh, loving hearing the conversation on Miami. But uh, glad I saved some sats, I guess, about the, the food. <laughs> Another funny story. So the first night, before the conference started, this would have been Monday of last week. Um, I was sitting at a dinner with um, 
Breedlove, and he's telling this story about how he was in this one place. I think it was in um, Nashville, maybe, where the drinks were thirty-five dollars, thirty-five between thirty-five and forty-two dollars. I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but each drink was like thirty-five to forty-two dollars, and they charged him thirty dollars. Not even making this up, they charged him thirty dollars for serving it to him neat, and he was. He was livid over this. He was like, you could just see it in his body language. He was losing his shit. He's like, what the hell do you mean? $30 for neat. It was an upcharge for doing less work, apparently. Because, you know, it, that was pretty funny. It's ridiculous. Good morning, Snow. Welcome up. Morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think it brings up an interesting question of, I think to a lot of normies, it sounds crazy, but if you look at all the markets Bitcoin's taking, you know, I could definitely see it go to price points, you know, something like a hundred mil. It sounds insane until you you run the numbers, but it does beg the question of what is a dollar at that point and what does a dollar get us? Um, in the long run, I'm incredibly bullish as I think we all are, but I think the short to intermediate period um, is a little concerning about what, what are these dollars going to get us, I don't know, five to eight years from now. Yeah, like this whole concept of, you know, that Sailor brought up when he first started buying Bitcoin, which pretty much every thought, everyone thought he was nuts, right? He was like, look, I'm operating this corporate treasury. I'm a fiduciary. I'm responsible for a publicly trading company. We have 500-ish million dollars or whatever the was, the number was at the time on the balance sheet. We need to figure out what to do with this thing. And then in his engineering way, he methodically went through every single asset he could have bought, whether that meant buying back his own stock or buying other things or various different ways of trying to protect the purchasing power of the cash balance of the corporation. And he came to realize that like, you know, inflation uh, over a period of five to 10 years can destroy up to half of his stack. And he's like, yeah, that's not good uh, based upon the accelerating rate of inflation. So what do you do? And that's where he ended up buying Bitcoin. I think like the way that this can really work for us in the shorter medium term is like better innovation around Bitcoin credit. Like I want to see, I want to see Bitcoin loans with like a 99% chance of not being liquidated. And maybe that's not realistic, but maybe we could have way lower liquidation risk than we have now. Um, I think this bold Bitcoin credit card is huge. It sounds like other companies that we all know might be doing um, innovative Bitcoin credit soon because that's how we'll all survive this is if we can very easily tap our like Bitcoin holdings to borrow a decent amount of cash to like pay for the insane prices of food and everything. Yeah. Or grow your own, but not everyone can do that. So I realize that's not easier said than done. <laughs> Alex, can you shine any light to that fertilizer cost that you were kind of explaining to me about how the farmers and, and all that? Are we losing the room? Is, so, is everybody else here? Yeah, it looks like we lost Alex. Uh, huh? I'm still here. I see. And I'm having issues with Tomer, up. man. I'm trying to get him up here. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, good morning, guys. What's up, good guy? What's up, Ant? 
And D, I know I'm you were saying here. you're uh, you're fomoing a little bit about not coming to Miami. I know it was very exciting this weekend, but we're going to be moving on from that here eventually. Start talking about just you know. So you're not going to have Perfect. to be sad for too long. But why come next yeah. time, man? Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, next year for sure. Looks like we're having one of those Twitter Spaces kind of moments or mornings. My my client was bugging out. Yeah, D, buy the ticket now. You know, or or wait until the last minute, one or the other. But they're you know they're it's basically the cheapest it's ever going to be. I don't know how long, but they're pretty cheap right now. Yeah, that's a good call. Um, I think uh, I was talking to Rodolfo NBK about going next year. So fingers crossed that he uh, gets me a nice ticket. But I can also buy it myself too. We talking about the Bitcoin Conference twenty twenty three already? Yeah, just the tickets <laughs> yeah. being cheap. Alex, before you dropped off, I was asking you to like kind of uh, you were telling me about the fertilizer costs going up and the farmers, and I was saying if you could just shine some light on that. Oh uh, yeah, so like. In the area that I live, there's a lot of farmers. And prior to going to conference, <clears throat> I had a farmer invite me to dinner because him and his wife wanted to know what Bitcoin was. They they didn't understand it. And so we had a great dinner, um, just super kind, you know, salt of the earth people. These I really have a lot of respect for farmers and admiration because they're some of the hardest working people on the planet. And they're very humble in my experience. And anyway, this guy... You know, he was just asking questions like he didn't understand how, you know, is intangible. This is the thing I hear a lot. A lot of people don't understand how it can have value if it's intangible. And basically, I just walk them through the whole thing about, well, the U.S. dollar at this point is pretty much intangible. It's all digital, right? Like 95 percent to 99 percent probably of of the way the U.S. dollar is used around the world now nowadays is all digital. So essentially, that's intangible. So the, the idea that you can't. Be used as money, hold value, or or whatever, because it's intangible is basically no longer valid. Um, I mean, whether it holds value or not <laughs> nowadays is completely questionable. But anyway, uh, to answer your question, Jacob, um, you know the 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 whole thing about inflation raging is crazy because he was explaining to me that his um, costs for fertilizer are up. 250% year over year and that um there's probably a good chance that it's going to you're going to start to see these smaller farmers going out of business because they simply can't afford the cost of production um, and then you're also obviously going to see those costs over the next 18 months or so play out through the food chain so this is all it's all happening all that kind of stuff's going down right now And so food's obviously much more important, I think, arguably, than iPhones and stuff. But I also read this morning, and I don't remember their names, but there's a couple of other, uh, you know, manufacturers shutting down because of what's going on in China. So I think we're going to start seeing some supply chain issues again. Well, the question becomes, does it just get progressively worse because we're all interlinked in a complex system, right? I don't know. Good I swear we're living in the mandibles. We're all a part of the family right now. And we're all going to be writing our own narratives and stories. All I know, man, is thank God for Bitcoin. 
You know, it's the it's the thing that gives me hope for for not just what we're going through right now, but for humanity in the future. And it's just like it is the beacon of light and hope. I'm not I mean, I'm I hope I don't sound all woo woo about that. If you're new to Bitcoin, you're new to this space, you're new to these rooms like, you know, I don't want to freak anybody out by saying that. And the simple truth is we get pretty um, cosmic in these spaces. Sometimes there's a lot of love in the Bitcoin community. If you hang out for a little while, you start to figure that out. I mean, we got Tomer Strolight up here. Good morning, Tomer. He's a perfect example of that. He's like a walking ball of love and light <laughs> and happiness. I love this guy. Good morning. Maybe you put me on the spot. Uh, all I'll say is good morning, and I love you all. Uh, at at this point, um, it is uh, it's just another day in Bitcoin. Now that the Bitcoin conference is over, I suppose back to normal. I, and I'm just tuning in, so I, I don't know exactly all the things that you've been talking about. It looks like inflation continues to be pretty high, and uh, and there's there are lots of things to be concerned about. But this is part of the shift, in my view, of the uh, of the transfer to the to the found, new foundation of our international global economic civilization that's based built off of a sound money standard, and so all the things that are built off of unsound money are getting really shaky the rails of that system are like the cars are coming off the rails of that system and if it weren't for bitcoin this would be a time for a great a great deal of fear uh, but i think i think it's also a t it's not that bad things won't happen but it's a time of a great deal of hope as well because we can rebuild without having everything collapse like we have that we have the technology now to build the a solid foundation for our civilization and and, and you know, a global economy is all about goods moving in one direction and money moving in the other. And when the money is broken and people don't want the money or it, or the money that's moving in some directions is created out of thin air and given to the wrong people, that's what undermines a rational, productive, growing economy. And so we're still in the very earliest stages of Bitcoin monetizing, but it's here and it's sound money. And so that's the that's the beauty of it from my point of view. You, yeah. you did say normal Bitcoin day. Um, so I do, I do imagine everybody else woke up at 5 a.m. and they've been selling off their their assets. Uh, they've been hustling. They've probably already had some meetings with clients stacking those sats. Right. That's a that's a normal Bitcoin day for everybody else too. normal. Personally, personally speaking, I had a uh, close to two hour call with Bitcoin Tina this morning because I was working. I was up early and I'm writing this publication that I write for Swan and planning the next month's issue. And I thought the theme of it would be there is no alternative. And I thought I would write to Bitcoin Tina and see if he wanted to contribute. And he told me he doesn't write, but he called me and we talked for two hours. So, yeah, it's totally normal day. It's okay, outstanding. Um, Tomer is kind of my um, my spiritual grounding uh, person. Like he and I are very yin-yang, very balanced. He balances me anyway, because... I'm all about <laughs> trying to detect threats to my own personal ecosystem, which includes anything that I consider, um, you know, fuckery and knuckleheads doing stupid things. And uh, so I, I, I pay attention to that kind of stuff because I like to be aware of it. So it, because it's my nature to do so, and Tomer's always the guy that kind of, he's just, he's just a ball of love. He's a great dude. Um, all right, so we got a ton of new interesting things happening in Bitcoin news. Uh, let's hit some of these things. So 
Oh, uh, we have some really interesting uh, featured guests coming up, by the way. We've got Andy Schoonover. I hope I said your name right, Andy, of Crowd Health. Very cool stuff we're going to be talking about with him here today as our featured guest. Um, basically, the first steps of revamping the healthcare system centered around Bitcoin. So this is something that we've talked about for a while that we knew was probably going to happen at some point. But it looks like the first iterations of that are starting to appear. So that's going to be an interesting discussion. Um, in other Bitcoin news, Intel's launching their Bitcoin mining chip, as uh, many of you already know. So they're calling it the block scale ASIC. Uh, apparently, its efficiency is up to 26 joules per terahash, which... Uh, so they say makes it better than most Bitmain and micro BT models currently on the market. Um, they're saying that this is going to play a major role in helping Bitcoin mining companies achieve both sustainability and hash rate scaling objectives. Uh, they're planning on shipping new chips starting uh, in the third quarter. They're not disclosing pricing yet. A bunch of companies have already pre-ordered a bunch of these things. Um, they're designed, so they say, to be highly customizable and can be used with either air cooling or liquid cooling. Um, what else? Oh, Hive is saying that Intel's new mining chips have the potential to increase the company's hash rate by as much as 95%. Um, and they're saying that... Uh, the hash rate of the new chips could be as high as maybe 100 plus terahash per second and that you can use multiple of these chips on one board for a combined uh, potentially 200 plus terahash. I don't know where that can go. Good guy probably has more info on that or thoughts on that. Tomer, go ahead. Yeah. What I think is most interesting about this is there's a few very interesting things about this. One is these are chips that, I, as I understand, will be made in America, which is amazing, right? Um, but, but most importantly, it's that Intel doesn't plan to build mining machines. They're making chips. And everyone who's, who's been around for a while remembers this was Intel's incredibly successful strategy in the PC industry. You could not buy an Intel PC you could buy a Dell PC or a compact PC or an HP or an IBM PC, but they all had this, you know, this, they all had Intel chips inside. And that eventually became Intel's advertising slogan, Intel inside. And what made it incredible is it commoditized the personal computer. Everyone was making, you know, Bill Gates made a fortune selling Microsoft Windows. Intel made a fortune selling chips. The, the, the the PC Dell and Compact didn't have particularly good businesses. They ended up many of them ended up merging and operating at razor thin margins. But computing personal computers conquered the world. Right? Everyone, it was a crazy idea initially to have a, a, your own computer, and now it's a crazy idea to imagine someone living without one. And this notion of commoditizing the hardware was a very effective strategy for Intel. It made them an incredibly valuable company. Now that the competition has kind of caught up and people are using different chips, Intel's under pressure and, and personal computing has moved to phones, which use custom chips. But Intel's move into this is strategically um, reminiscent of how they made their success in the PC industry and how it how their success ended up aligning with mass 
like mass creation of PCs because everyone could make a PC, right? Michael Dell started making PCs in the bathtub of his college dorm room. That's where Dell got started. And when you have this accessibility to the basic components available as a commodity to everybody, it changes the game. It's not only someone who can manufacture a chip can put out a miner. It's anyone Anyone on this call can will be able to buy the mining chips from Intel and put out their own miner that's suited to whatever industry niche or segment there is. If it's something, people will build the things for the home. People will build things for the data centers. People will build things for power generation companies that scale up and down. And so, and, and this is a breakthrough in the supply chain because right up until now, everybody's been buying fully assembled miners that are as efficient as. But there's one kind of one solution fits all from each manufacturer this kind of blows the door open on this and it'll it'll make a big difference i think the other thing uh, that's false i was oh, just going to say you know manufacturing asics at scale is really difficult when, when it comes to asics application specific integrated circuits um i think people are overestimating intel's interest in this uh this is these are really specific to one niche of the computation market and they yeah. make far more money doing things like the neural learning and the ai um, think of Bitcoin mining as a minimum wage job for computation. There's far more sophisticated things that can be done. Uh, the facilities in America are going to take a long time before they're anywhere near as efficient as the ones we see in places like um, the TMC. Um, we, yeah, and, and we, see, we see that there's maybe only two companies at scale that can produce ASICs uh, in a profitable way in a four-year cycle. They have to spend $4 billion setting up these fabs. Yeah, but good guy. I think there's thing you're. I think there's maybe one thing you're missing, which was what I would had my hand up to talk about. As I understand it, the way they're making these chips, they're actually relatively small. They do not. Yeah, need they're to, very. No way. Yeah, they don't need to make. They don't need to make new fabs. You're going to be able to produce them within the capacity that they already have. Yeah. So. so this this is the misconception. People assume that they can take their existing facilities and start ramping out ASICs, and that they will. And I think that the majority of those are going to be pre-bought. Um, I don't think they're competitive compared to the existing ASICs. Um, I think that they're not nearly as dense either. So the density of these ASICs is much lower. So you might see these more as like things going in your refrigerators or your fire alarms. So that I Samsung don't, I don't agree, but not Intel well, didn't you know, pay, Intel as, didn't pay me to say that. But as I, I someone who's, who's mining and has been mining in the space for a very long time. This whole Intel thing looks much like a, a nothing burger to me. Um, the, I, I, the difference between the quality of ASICs and the efficiencies of those is directly related to those foundries and the silicone lottery and the binning. You know, Bitmain has 248 SKUs for the same chipset. The same board has 248 SKUs. Intel has said that every one of their chips are going to be standardized and the same. Intel's not going to be able to do what they're, they're suggesting they're doing at scale. It's not going to be the, um, the Bitcoin revolution that people are assuming, nor are they going to be the most competitive manufacturers in the market, in my opinion. Um, and, and if the price wanes for several years, the entire production line could suffer greatly. Um, so if we get a sustained bear market, we might see Intel switch that, those, those um, wafers to something else very quickly. So I just... I really, 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 really want to push back on this whole Intel thing. I have done a ton of research and looking into it. Um, yeah, they might be making ASICs, but they're not going to be competitive or dense or industry-leading ASICs. And the idea that those are going to be readily available for consumers is insane, is insanity. 
I, I think this will be an interesting conversation to have about a year from now, not because I want to contradict what you're saying, uh, but I, I think I think to what I was saying, the, in, Antminer makes all these hundreds of SKUs because they don't sell the chips, they sell the, mach the assembled machines, right? Whereas what Intel's strategy is, is they're going to sell the chips and they'll let you make the SKU, right? They'll let anyone who, who wants to make SKUs make them. And this was what led to all the innovation of portable computers and and desktop computers and server computers and and they let they let other entrepreneurs figure out what SKUs are necessary and needed. They just sold chips by the thousands, and that's what they're doing over here. And I and I think the history of the PC shows that that can be a very effective strategy at creating a market that is very dynamic and innovative and has lots of successes and lots of failures, but not at Intel's expense. And so I think that this is interesting. And maybe a year is not even enough time. But, but it, you know, the, the, the other point I was just going to make is Intel's acknowledgement that they want to be in the Bitcoin mining space is nothing to be um, ignored. Right? Here's the leading chip making company in the world for decades acknowledging that they want to be in this space and, and putting their resources into it. So I think that's also very important. Now, it, as you say, it, sometimes these things are nothing burgers and the company makes a, a commitment to something and then forgets about it and wanders off. That's a possibility here for sure too. But but so it's just I don't side. think they're gonna be competitive, right? I don't think they'll be competitive ASICs for okay, a long time. Okay, okay. We heard you, we heard you first. We heard you the first time. <laughs> All right. We've got a bunch of people with hands up. Let's give everybody a chance to go here. I don't know who had their hand up first for so gentlemen, I'm gonna let you self regulate. Be polite, please. Dan. Yes, good guy. I was just uh, here in your argument, and I was wondering, regardless of this short-term Intel development, are you still bullish on Bitcoin being a catalyst uh, for innovation and investment into uh, into these new computer chips and these, whether they're ASICs or not, um, and how that would potentially benefit um, as we're trying to like decentralize the production of these really efficient computer chips out of places just like Taiwan or South Korea? Yeah, the more efficient they can make the chip, chips, the more applications they have. Incredibly efficient chips that, that consume low amounts of power. They can go into everything. And I think I think they will start to go into everything. And these companies will advertise, you know, your your smoke alarm also mines Bitcoin. Your refrigerator also mines Bitcoin. I, 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 I think that's up the marketing play. That's the Arizona iced tea effect, the Arizona blockchain iced tea effect. I think that's huge. I just don't think it's going to be any amount of relative hash rate com in comparison. And I don't think they're going to be nearly as effective as the companies that do this at scale and have for se several years now. Um, but uh, what you're referring to, Dan, I think is exactly the way it's going to go. It's going to allow innovation and creativity at much smaller scales. Thanks. Yeah, just yeah. to hop on his question while we're... Uh, oh, sorry, PD, do you want to uh, go? No, no, you can go. Can go. I'll, go I'll go next, yeah. It was just kind of uh, close to Dan's question. I mean, um, I, I know at the conference, a lot of people were talking about, yeah, having having a miner in your toaster or having a miner, uh, you know, in your car and whatnot. Um, is there uh, like an incentive to do that? Because, I mean, you know, obviously those like a toaster is going to mine you maybe, you know, maybe a dollar a month in Bitcoin, if that, like probably not even, you know, so what's the incentive to to do that instead of more so industrialize the mining operations. Can I can I Marketing. talk? Can I talk here, real quick? You guys mind if I jump in? 
Yeah, sure. Um, all right. So here's my thought behind it. And I don't know if this is how they're thinking, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little hyperbolic in my predictions of what could happen with Bitcoin. And I think if Bitcoin were to all of a sudden just fucking moon and fiat collapses, we get a hyper Bitcoinization in, you know, like a, an epoch or two, right? Like it's like, it's like a brutal, brutal rip where, where fiat dies. Um, the price is going to outrun the hash rate by a ton. And so mining will become extremely profitable, even if you have a small little chip in a toaster. So like that will be kind of your, you know, your, your backup plan. Uh, if you, if you can no longer convert fiat into Bitcoin and society is kind of like crumbling on a, you know, on, on the fiat standard, as it's transitioning to the Bitcoin standard, you're going to want that toaster that can mine a little bit of Bitcoin on the side, you know? I, I think it's more about power rates than anything else. As the power rates come down for the average consumer, people will mine Bitcoin on every bit of electronics they have. And having chips to go along with those electronics that are inexpensive and specifically good at mining Bitcoin, which will switch off that power consumption, say, from that compressor on the fridge. Every time your compressor on your fridge isn't running, the Bitcoin chips are. Totally plausible, but it's directly related to the efficiency of the chips and the cost of power for consumers. The, imp the infrastructure is, is important as well, but Intel's already made it very clear they're looking to have low requirements, not 240 volts, not industrial scale infrastructure. They're looking to allow these things to be modular, put into things. Um, so I imagine yeah, lots of your things will have it, but the closer we are to zero power rate, the more effective and more realistic Intel's current play is. Uh, PD, we're going to go with you in one second. I had a question I wanted to ask kind of everybody up here because, it, you know, can you guys see a future? Maybe this is a little science fiction-y at this point or whatever, but can you see a future where people are running uh, nodes, um, validating nodes on their phones, like where we have our own? So everybody's got their own bank, basically, and they're carrying it around with them. Like, what do you, you think that's feasible? There's already, I mean, it there's may be a phone. belt buckles or something or their earrings. Who knows? <laughs> There's already a cell phone that that has a full node available. The the storage will be one of the issues, right? Getting it down to where you can yeah, store a lot of data. Yeah. I don't know. See, to me, like you know, we're always improving that, right? I can remember back in the day, like my first computer was an Atari 800. I had an 8K RAM chip, 8K in that thing, and I thought it was amazing. And like every six months or a year, you know, obviously storage improves and improves and improves. And it's like, I'm not so worried about that part. How no, the they have, they have one terabyte SD cards you can put in your phones now. So like right. in, in that sense, flash memory has solved that problem. Yeah. And you can carry a prune, uh, the, the UTXO set of a prune node on a, an SD card, right? Which doesn't, which doesn't have to be a one terabyte SD card. So that this may be a direction that we're headed in. Certainly people being able to self-custody their keys and keep backups and, and have nodes with their, um, that, that are operational with wallets that they want hot for their, for their spending money are things that are already happening. You know, like I, I, I was at the Bitcoin conference selling my book, so I had Wallet of Satoshi open. People were sending me money on Lightning nonstop from all these different applications. And then I swept some of these excess profits into... Um, into some cold storage and a bunch of them into my lightning node when I got back home. And, 
you just end up having these things like in the old world, you would have a banking account, a checking account, an investment account, and, you know, all these different things. And now I've got, I've got a full node that just, <laughs> that stable, that allows me to check on things. I've got, I've got a lightning node that runs on a different full node somewhere. I've got this lightning custodial wallet that I use for spending money when I'm up and about. And of course, I've got my whole cold storage solution for my stack. And it's not really that complicated. Like it just is, I've got, I've got a hardware wallet in one place. I've got a little Raspberry Pi running a server in another place. And I've got apps on my phone. And that's all I need uh, to have completely replaced the system. And, and I'm living a world, this is what I, one of the things I was talking with Bitcoin Tina about, I'm living in a world where I'm doing transactions. I live in Canada. I'm doing transactions with people in the Netherlands and Finland and the UK and America and South America. And, there's, and it's all frictionless and it's all instant and we're able to deal with each other. So I think it's all coming and, and it's, it's already reasonably elegant. Um, it, and it's getting really easy. So it doesn't um, even feel like okay, it's I have a, I have a quick anecdotal story to tell as well, but I want to welcome Andy um, Schoonover. I hope I said your name right, Andy. Good morning. Welcome up. Hey, good morning. You nailed it. Thanks for having me. You bet. You are loud and clear. So we're going to dive into focusing on you a little bit later in the show. We're still kind of covering some of the news, which we do in the beginning of the show every day, as you may already know. Um, and then um, I'm going to give my quick little analogy. We'll go to PD Capital, where then we're going to switch topics here real quick. So my quick story for the for the uh, conference in regards to medium of exchanges is that one of the nights um, – you know, I was sitting around talking to some people that were not at the conference. These were all just people who were friends of the family had come over one night. I'm staying with a friend and we got into the discussion of Bitcoin. And <laughs> one of the things that got brought up is, well, you know, this is the typical. It can, it's not used as a medium of exchange. So, you know, it can't be money. The very next day. We took a, a team of people out to one of the local uh, firing ranges, gun ranges here in Miami. We shut the range down. We took over the whole facility, and we were teaching these guys basic firearms stuff. Guess what? Every single one of them paid uh, with sats over lightning. We just went around the room, and it was so fast. It was so fast. Walked around the room. Everybody scanned it. Boom, done. Boom, done. Boom, done. It was like the fastest <laughs> – payment process for a group of people that I have ever seen in that kind of an environment. It was fantastic. Okay. So, um, PD capital, go ahead. After you go, we're going to change the topic. There's one other news item I want to hit, then we'll do announcements and we'll dive into some stuff with Andy. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, what's up everybody? Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Um, like awesome conversation. I just want to eat on, on some points about the, the chips which I think it's it's very important because we have uh, right now a, a ship shortage, and that's that's mainly be because of how the the supply chain is is distributed across the world, mainly on on Taiwan. Which I think like good guy is is absolutely right on that. Like the the Intel the Intel shit, it's 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 mainly about the the silicon lottery, and he nailed it on that. Like it's the silicon lottery, and you you have to think about it. And you will probably, even if you manufacture the chip itself, the the metal part and the modular part, in the US, you will gonna get the silicon out of Taiwan. I would say, it, it's inevitable. And so the 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 chain supply is is problematic in that sense. Uh, anyway, and about Intel, uh, we know that they they have built um, backdoors into their chips. Uh, a bunch of of years and like this is this is known public stuff, and 
for Bitcoin mining, that's super problematic if that's some backdoor uh, built into these ships. And so, um, but I, I got to agree with Tomer as well uh, when he says like the commoditizing of this uh, literal personal, uh, like make yourself like inter- entrepreneurial and innovational uh, modular things that you can just attach to something. It's it's important. It's it's an important uh, change trend. Uh, about inflation uh, and what when what you said, Alex, I don't think like the the nodes uh, being on a phones will be problematic in the future. We see this uh, storage uh, being uh, updated um, in every year. You you see um, new news to this, so I don't think it's problematic. Even full nodes uh, on a phones in ten years, they'll be they'll be <clears throat> very easy with uh, small blocks, and that's why small blocks. <clears throat> small blocks are are so important uh, about inflation 8.5 percent this is this is a wake up for for the no coiners uh they just look around and when they see their life saving gets crushed they they gotta jump somewhere and uh, bitcoin is the only it's the only no-brainer so that's that's what we're going to say yeah that's my two sets on everything nice thanks for sharing man appreciate it okay so uh, another topic that we're going to hit real quick, and then we'll do some announcements and we'll start to talk to Andy about all the cool stuff that he's working on. I'm excited to dig into that. Um, so there's a report that was just released by Into the Block, and they're saying that 551 million US dollars of Bitcoin now belongs to the long term holders, that it's basically. Um, during Q1 2022, investors who have held the top crypto asset by market cap for at least a year have kicked off a massive accumulation spree that is now holding 12 million BTC. So these are all long-term holders with a record amount of 12 million. It's pretty fascinating to me. I mean, you know, a lot of the, you guys who've been in the space for a while, you're well aware of this kind of trend and the and the and the sort of the the way that the behavior is working amongst long-term holders of bitcoin but it's so fascinating to me for purposes of the the game theory and what's going to happen um <laughs> as anybody of size tries to enter this market the, the implications of it are just staggering so let's get some thoughts and comments on that then we'll do some announcements and jump in with andy anybody have any thoughts on this I was just going to say, I know uh, a lot of people are holding. Is it, uh, are they holding on exchanges or are they holding in cold storage? Do you, is there a difference there? Yeah, my understanding is, is that the amount of Bitcoin held on, on exchanges continues to drop over time. And this has been kind of a consistent trend. So um, the implication is this is all in self-custody. And uh, long-term holders, 12 million coins, there will only ever be 21 million. 19 million of which have already been mined, which leaves about 2 million to be mined over the next 120 years. Um, and it's just super interesting because if, if, if the case turns out to be that those coins won't be available for sale, obviously price changes everything. And if it went to 500,000 and, and a million, some new coins would, would be available for sale. But dang, still mind-blowing. Wicked, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I think, you know, this is probably an on-chain analytics and, and I'm assuming that they're taking exchange coins into account. And exchanges 
tend to move their coins around anyways, so they would probably be exempt from this analysis anyways. So, so I would assume that this is um, self-custodied uh, long-term holders. From, from what I saw, the vast majority of, of new money in this space sold off. They got in around that twenty dollars to $40,000 range, and most of them sold off. Most of those new wallets, those new sums sold off when it crashed from 68 back down below yeah. 40. So that's anyone right. that's still here has been here for at least a year at this point. And, and it, to me, it seems like to Alex's point, they're very interested in the long-term holding. We've seen a shift, you know, that those, those, that money from took us from 20,000 to 60,000 in a very short period of time. And it seems like most of that interest that was there just for the short-term returns has left. And, and what we're left with is a really strong floor. Uh, of brand new money invested. Uh, it's very interesting to see for sure. I know I'm a part of that statistic because since I you know, got wise and went Bitcoin only you know, about six months ago, I haven't sold a single sat and don't plan on it. Yeah, and I think the, the point about the strong floor is great, but, but it's, it's got to remember that the price is determined by trading on the margin. And if you've got a lot of people holding and everybody else is just kind of shorting it or leverage long, could have a lot of these events where you have these cascading, uh, you know, at price action to the downside. So don't get discouraged by that. But until the volume comes up and the liquidity increases, um, you, you just have a lot of this precarious price action. You mean like I mean, uh, Bitfinex pushing people off their longs and shorts? Don't mess with paper Bitcoin products. The, the short term players will beat you every time. Yeah, I like this stat, you know, and I like to watch like the HODL stats and all that. But there's always this like realization in the back of my mind that with Bitcoin being so liquid, I mean, at any moment, any of these people that are holding forever, I mean, at the right price, they're going to go dump it for themselves. I mean, there's people who are like saying they're never going to sell. But I mean, like Alex was saying, you know, if people come in with big money trying to buy what's left. I mean, the price is going to go up and then yeah, for sure. a metric for sure. like this, you know, long-term HODL metric, I mean, that's going to go out the window at, at the right price. I am price. never going to sell. I am never going to sell, Ant. I'm never right. No, sell. sure. Yeah. Spin, don't sell. <laughs> I, right. I can't like, wait till people start selling. When Satoshi comes back, when he gets out of jail for taking those weird photos or whatever happened, who knows? Uh, I can't wait to buy my grandmother a whole bunch of Bitcoins when the price comes down because we've seen this all. It's short-term volatility. I have full confidence we'll hit 68K and then all, all new highs. So, um, yeah, just keep buying. That's, that's the secret here. Whatever price you're buying at now is irrelevant once it hits a million bucks. Just keep that in mind. The real problem here is getting it before everybody else gets in, before yeah. that, those large liquidity runs start. Then your ability to get it is going to be much more difficult. Hell yeah. hundred yeah. percent agree. hundred percent agree. I mean, like we, we, we as Bitcoiners for the first time in history, the people get to front run the institutions and I'm really fired up about that. Fuck those guys. Go ahead, D. Yeah. I was just, I, you know, I, I fully agree, you know, trying to get in as cheap as possible and, you know, cheaper sats, the better. I'm, I'm not complaining at all. I'm just confused that, you know, we hear that um, we have a, all-time high amount of bitcoin off exchanges and yet we're still sitting at like a you know 40k bitcoin so what does anyone have like a thought on why the maybe the price is so suppressed look i i don't but i think it's awesome and i hope it continues go ahead i agree i agree yeah i think you know a lot of people were talking about how maybe bitcoin's not proving itself to be such a great inflation hedge lately 
but I disagree with that. I, I had to tweet this morning that the people who bought in front run by buying Bitcoin in April, you know, 2020, when we were at like 8,000 and the, the Federal Reserve was printing trillions of dollars, we saw what was coming and we front run it pretty early. And the people who bought before this kind of price rise up to the 30 to $40,000 range, that was the big inflation hedge. And I think that you're going to continue to have people accumulating in a couple of years from now when inflation is still going, when Bitcoin is, you know, presumably above 100,000. Those people that bought today, they're hedging their their future inflation um, risk. You're just seeing yeah. short-term volatility, in my opinion. You're seeing... Um, good guy. You know, the- Stop. Tomer. And then good guy. And then announcements. Go ahead, Tomer. Yeah. Um, my point here, I, I could offer a little bit of speculation on why the price is what it is. But more important, like I want to, there's nothing to time here. Like the, the, to me, the investment thesis, and you can have a different investment thesis, but in my investment thesis, there's nothing about timing, about waiting for the price to be low or selling when it's high. Like you cannot predict the swings of this thing. And probably the reason the price is as low as it is, is there are people playing some games to try to make shake, shake weak hands loose uh, here. But the point, the point is you're holding this thing until it essentially goes to infinity and you shouldn't be thinking about at what price am I selling. You, you might be thinking at what price am I transacting to acquire certain other long-term valuable things that I'm seeking to acquire. But you shouldn't be you shouldn't even really be focused on on the price short term because these volatilities that might make you think, oh, I'm going to buy at this price only, meaning you're not buying at some other price, so you're missing an opportunity to buy, or I might sell at that price, meaning you're exiting the best investment that exists, means you're mistaken. And th- this isn't the, like a stock that gets overvalued at some point, and so then you sell it and you wait until it returns. The value of this thing is it's all the money in the world. As Knut says, it's infinity divided by 21 million. It's still basically infinity as measured in dollars. So accumulate as and when you can. There's so many stories of people who kept waiting for the price to go down. They got $650. I'll wait for it to go back down to $250. And then and then they're buying at $14,000 or $18,000. If, you, if you, you're not going to buy everything at the absolute bottom price, that's not the goal. The goal is to accumulate the thing that's becoming all the money of the whole wide world for a really, really long time. Good guy. Keep it brief and then announcements, please. Yeah, what you're seeing is groups like Bitfinex using new, in my opinion, using new holders, uh, holding paper products in the space. Uh, People who are holding their Bitcoin self-sovereignly are unaffected by these price changes. The people who are affected are people who are longing Bitcoin, shorting Bitcoin, hedging into some of these other coins and using these paper products in the market. Um, And if I think, you know, Tomer said you can't determine the swings. I've been following the on-chain statistics, and to me, it seems like playing the contrarian short-term is the best bet, best bet. And what I mean by that is if there's more people longing Bitcoin, then it seems like the market's going to short itself. And if there's more people shorting Bitcoin, it seems like these, these localized market makers like Bitfinex are going to long the market and push those people off of those. So unless you've got orders staked, unless you're hedged into some kind of paper product, that's when you're affected by this price action. Uh, and that's the only they can only affect to that point a very small amount of people who are still involving themselves with these paper Bitcoin products on these centralized exchanges. If you get your Bitcoin off, you get in a hardware wallet, you are unaffected by the short-term volatility. No matter what happens to the price, you still have 
as much Bitcoin as you ever did. And, and in time, that Bitcoin's price will, will increase greatly. Um, so you're just seeing a lot of new people being affected by some of these centralized players in the very, very short term. And go. Well, I was just going to raise this one thing we were talking about last night. Somebody saw some kind of big spike in like minor outflows to exchanges and they were like, oh, no. And there was like all these tweets out there about like miners selling out and like, you know, they're dumping the price and blah, blah, blah. But and I don't know what I'm talking. Good guy will correct me. But in my gut, it's like, I mean, miners have expenses, too, right? Yeah, in fact, I would I would I would switch the whole mat. You're absolutely right, Ant. I would say that miners aren't even selling in the traditional sense. They're taking investor money to allow them to not have to sell that Bitcoin for long periods of time. And they're selling that Bitcoin in the future to these investors. So these exchanges, these large corporations, these people who need liquidity, they're buying the Bitcoin from the miners for years ahead of time allowing the miners to not need to sell that Bitcoin at a low price and allowing them to get the, the, the infrastructure they need to increase their surface area of that overall block subsidy. That is fascinating. You know what's interesting about that is that is mimicking what happens in the gold industry. You know, in the gold industry, the bullion, the so-called bullion banks will buy gold miners forward production for some period of time and they pay for it in advance. So it capitalizes their operations and it guarantees that the bullion banks have inventory to sell. So that's that's a fascinating thing. I didn't know that. Very cool. All right. This has been a really cool discussion. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning to everyone. Welcome if you're new. We do this every day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for about two hours. We talk about all things Bitcoin. This is a great place for you to get your morning news on Bitcoin. It is a preferred hangout for some of the smartest people in Bitcoin to come drop in and talk about whatever's going on. This is also a podcast. It's up on Spotify. It's up on Apple everywhere that you regularly get your podcasts you can throw a follow to myself or swan bitcoin to be notified of when those drop if you're interested in getting a job in the bitcoin ecosystem you can go to bitcoinerjobs.com we had a booth over there at the conference this last week we had tons and tons of people dropping by wanting to know about how do i get a job in the bitcoin uh, industry and the Bitcoin ecosystem. It's a great way to do it. If you're a company and you're looking to hire people, that's another way, great way to do it. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you want to know more about Swan and what we do, I work in the Swan private division. We're, so we're um, designed as a kind of a one-on-one concierge service for high net worth, ultra high net worth if you're a business owner. A lot of people wanting to put Bitcoin on business balance sheets nowadays. We have some of the fastest onboarding in the industry for uh, businesses that want to open a business account. Um, typically, we're doing it in less than a week. I've seen in some cases we do it in fast as 48 hours. So if you're interested in that, shoot me a DM. Happy to help you out. And why wouldn't you be? Exactly. <laughs> it's happening more and more often, right? Like I, I talk to new business owners every single week. Same thing. They're like, hey, we've got cash. Um, and if it's more cash than, than business owners need for operations, I mean, they're seeing an incentive to put some of it into Bitcoin. And that's that's becoming kind of normalized actually now with a lot of businesses that we're talking to. Keep in mind, business owners are these are not stupid people, right? A lot of people are like, well, why would you do something like that? It's like, look, guys, 
<laughs> These are some of the smartest people in the human race. Business owners are. They think outside the box. They run very complex companies. They 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 understand the cost of things. They understand economics. These are not dumb people by any stretch of the imagination. So, all right. All that being said, our our featured guest today is Andy Schoonover. He is the CEO of Crowd Health, um, and. You know, we've been talking about for some time this sort of need to kind of revamp the uh, the healthcare system. I mean, me personally, I think in the United States in particular, it's completely jacked up. Um, all the incentives are screwed up. The insurance companies and big pharma basically own the entire healthcare system. Doctors can't even talk to their patients about the truth anymore without risk of having their medical licenses revoked. And it's just being used for all kinds of freaking nonsense and chicanery. You know, I actually left the United States of America to spend 11 years in Panama, Central America because, because of an incident that occurred with the healthcare system. I'm not going to belabor that. I, maybe I'll tell that story another time. But the bottom line is, is that it's being weaponized in some cases against the citizens of the United States. I don't know about in other countries, but all I know is screw big pharma. Screw these big insurance companies. They've completely screwed it up. If you go to that website, WTF happened in 1971.com, you can see this amazing bifurcation of um, the number of doctors to the number of so-called medical administrators. Stack and Sats posted a chart up in the nest if you want to see what that looks like. Um, and with all of that said, Andy, over to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, would you like to give us a little introduction in your background? Sure. Yeah. Good morning. Um, thanks again for for having me. I think it's uh, interesting that uh, maybe the, the thing that's arguably maybe equal to jacked up as our monetary system. It's our healthcare system, right? So we're, we are interesting bedfellows today for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So quick, quick background. Um, re- healthcare is, is kind of my first language. Um, Bitcoin is not. So I, I appreciate everybody's grace in terms of, of my, my, uh, my, my lingo that I use. So if I screwed up, please uh, give me grace on that. But I've, I've been in healthcare for, about 15 years, starting out as CEO of a company that does remote patient monitoring. So we were monitoring folks with chronic conditions out of their homes. So we were blood sugars, blood pressure, weight, things like that, so that we could get engaged before um, we, you know, before they go to the hospital. So interestingly enough, I was selling that product into health plans, which is my um, arch enemy now <laughs> in my in my current company. Um, did that for a little bit, and I sold that company back in uh, 2014. Uh, kind of used Cobra for a couple years. Um, then I had to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my health insurance? Um, at that time, I had two daughters. Um, went to healthcare.gov. I didn't know any better at the time, so got a, a plan for for my family. It was about 1,200 bucks, and you know, I, I kind of joked that it worked until I had to use it. Um, my little one was having recurring ear infections. So went to the ear, nose and throat doc who said, we have to get tubes in her ears. Anybody who has kids on the line, this is a, a re- recurring story here. So we went to the local hospital, got tubes in her ears, 15 minute procedure. And it was $8,000 for 15 minutes. So I was like, man, holy crap, 8,000 bucks for 15 minutes. We'd all love that, uh, that hourly rate. And, um, 
not only that, my my health insurance plan uh, contacted me and said it was medically unnecessary. They refused to pay for it even after a couple a couple rounds of uh, of con- conflict resolution. Um, so I had to stroke an eight thousand dollar check to the local hospital, and I was pissed. Um, so I called my health plan. I said, "Hey, you know, if you're not going to pay my bills, I'm not paying your bills." Um, and so my family has been uninsured for several years now. And have started putting together some tools that uh, allow us to operate outside of the health insurance system in a way that is 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 viable and gives us incredible amount of comfort and and freedom. Um, I don't have a, a health insurance company or the the federal government in between me and my doctor, and so um, that was kind of the the catalyst for Crowd Health. We we started a year ago and, and raised some some VC money to do that, and we've been off to the races. Um, we have used a kind of a fiat system um, to date using just you know normal dollars to pay for healthcare. And I had a uh, an interesting lunch with Jimmy Song. I'm I'm from Austin, so Jimmy and I have gotten to know each other. And uh, he's like, dude, you need to you need to use Bitcoin instead of fiat. Um, and so you know, excited to tell you a little bit more about you know how we think about that and some of the mechanics behind you know what we're doing at Crowd Health. But ultimately, you know. You are uninsured with Crowd Health. We give you a community of people who are willing to help you in the cases of the of the really big expenses. Um, no doctors' networks. It's about half the price of uh, what you would pay at, at healthcare.gov, and so we think we have something pretty special going. All right, so let, let's dig into that and let's talk more about it. Um, and and for people who are listening to this, like whether you agree with the Crowd Health model or not. I think the point here is is that a lot of these ecosystems are pretty pretty screwed up. They're they're basically super centralized or fully controlled by insurance companies, huge medical companies and pharmaceutical companies. And I think this is the first of possibly many um potential solutions to it to to start looking at addressing these problems. So my this is my understanding, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong and maybe Explain to us how this works a little bit. It's a liquidity pool that you can join. You contribute a certain amount of either dollars or maybe Bitcoin, I don't know, to, to the group monthly, and the group pays for the cost of the expenses. How would that, How does that work? Yeah, so every month you put um, – if you're be, between the ages of 6 and 54, um, it's 175 bucks into an account. That account is owned by you. Um, and then you use the money in the account to pay for uh, health the healthcare expenses of the community. If you leave and you have money left in that account, you take that money with you. So let's let's contrast that to a health insurance plan where you're paying premiums. That money goes into a big pot of you know depreciating assets, and they they pay or maybe not pay depending upon you know your situation. Um, they they pay the claims out of that pot. Um, so I'll give you a specific example of how this would work on the fiat side, and then I'll, I'm happy to share with you kind of our vision for the Bitcoin side. Um, so the Schoonover family has uh, my daughter breaks her arm. That's about a six thousand dollar expense all in. The Schoonovers will pay five hundred the first five hundred bucks out of my personal bank account, um, and then I will submit that bill to Crowd Health. Crowd Health. We'll validate it, make sure it's legitimate. 
And then we will go to, you know, 75 other people and ask them, Hey, will you give a hundred bucks to the Schoonover family? Because they have a, a really large bill. Now those hundred people can decide to say yes or to say no, it's voluntary. So it's truly kind of a crowdfunding type of, of situation. Um, and, then if, if they say yes, the money is transferred from their account to the Schoonover's account. Um, so then I have enough in that account to pay for my 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 daughter's broken arm. Um, so that's how the mechanics on the back end work. Um, you know, the, when I was having having lunch with with Jimmy, um, he said, look, you know, instead of putting dollars into an account and letting them sit in dollars, why don't we put dollars into an account convert that to Bitcoin um, and then leverage that Bitcoin as collateral to use a credit facility that can then be used to pay for healthcare bills. So instead of, of putting dollars into this big pool that the health insurance plan has, you're putting dollars into an account. It's being converted to Bitcoin. You're holding on to that Bitcoin. You're not selling it because we're actually using it as collateral for credit facility, which then the, the cash from the credit facility can be used to pay for uh, those healthcare expenses. And if you're with us for three or four or five years and Bitcoin goes the way that we all think it's going to, then you've actually accumulated assets in that account that are yours when you leave. Um, and so that's the, the significant difference between what we're doing and what a health insurance plan would be doing. Shane, go ahead. Yeah, quick question. So I know you said you don't have a network of doctors or anything, but do you do you negotiate or do you see a, a, a future where you negotiate, in essence, cash prices with these providers so that the actual procedure is also cheaper? Yeah. So I'll give you a quick, quick example that actually has happened in the last couple of weeks. So we we had a member up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, um, was having, interestingly, three weeks after after his COVID uh, vaccination, um, went to the hospital um, thinking he was having a heart attack. Uh, cardiologist said, you have to get a heart procedure. And if you do it at this hospital, it's $86,000. And so he calls us and says, hey, I've got to get this procedure. It's 86 grand. I said, okay, well, let us, can we shop around for that procedure? So we got a place in Chicago, which is about an hour and a half from their home, which was $44,000. So almost half, you know, an hour and a half away, you're paying half. And the actual, the surgeon was, was more highly rated. We found a, uh, a cardiologist in Oklahoma City, who's, this is a center of excellence for this actual procedure that they were going to do, that will do it for $22,000. So we said to the member, we said, hey, you can do it for 86, you can do it for 44, or you can do it for 22 you, you decide, but if you'll go and do it for 44, we'll pay you to do that. And if you do it for 22, we'll pay it, pay you more. So literally last week during the Bitcoin conference, uh, this guy had his heart procedure in Oklahoma city for $22,000. We flew him down there first class. We put him up in a suite at the nicest hotel in, in the city. We paid for all of his food, you know, and, and we still saved, you know, about $55,000 by, by doing that. Now, do you have to do that? No, it was totally his decision. We just gave him options and we paid him, you know, ultimately $3,000 to travel to Oklahoma city to do that. And that's not something that United healthcare would do, but you know, that's, that's a significant savings for, for the community. And we, we've done that, you know, on a dozen occasions that we've gotten that significant of a 
deduct or um, a discount when we've actually been able to shop around. So we're just we're adding free market principles into healthcare, which are currently non-existent. Amazing stuff. Wicked. Go ahead. Hey, Andy, thanks for uh, coming and, and explaining this. It's pretty interesting. Um, I had a question about um, insurance fraud uh, and, and how do you guys deal with that and prevent it? Um, and it kind of ties in with the second question, which is, you know, who validates a claim? Yeah, so, you know, a, a lot of the times, right, um, the insurance fraud is coming from the, the doctor side, right? The doctor is is submitting something to the insurance plan that never actually happened, right? They provided a, a service that never actually happened. And so, um, you know, for us, it is driven by the member. So we, we, we don't get claims from doctors, you know, members are the ones that submit those to us. Um, so, you know, and, and then we pay the doctor directly. So we have two different parties that have to verify that this is actually a, a procedure, um, that has happened. So that in itself, um, you know, re- requires a lot more effort to ensure that, you know, the fraud didn't happen, but it's, it, it for sure is going to happen. You know, right now they say that the healthcare system is 10 or 15% of the cost or related to fraud. I think we're going to get significantly lower than that, but we, we, we put processes in place that have, can help with that, but it's not going to eliminate it altogether. Um, so I, that was your first question. And I don't know about what, I forget what your second question was. It was just uh, who, who validates, like how is it decided oh. who, who actually is on the board for, to validate the claims? Yeah, we have an adjudication team internally who takes a look at these. And every time we get a bill, there's a list of CPT codes. And so there's some AI in the back end that said, OK, are these CPT codes that we validate the CPT codes? We validate that the, each CPT code goes with the other ones because the easiest way to find procedures that don't belong is, uh, you know, if I'm doing a hysterectomy on a 15 year old male, like clearly that just doesn't validate. I guess it's. 2022 right so who knows but um you know it's it's things like that that we've got a system on the back end that validates all of those things that they're actually you know the, the codes go together but you know what we found is about 80 percent of the bills have errors so they're either the, the hospital or the doctor is trying to upcharge which you know they they turn an inpatient per, or a an outpatient procedure into an inpatient procedure and therefore you're paying a lot more and you know, oftentimes that's, you know, a digit or two off from, you know, what the code should be. So we're catching a bunch of those things internally too. And, and, um, you know, so you can just imagine, you know, 80, 80% of, of the bills in healthcare currently are, have errors on them and, and the health plans aren't catching the vast majority of those. And so, you know, that's where we're losing a lot of value too in this system. All right. So, um, Really appreciate you coming to talk about all this stuff. It's obviously, well, to me, some people are like, it's the same old, same old as, as the old insurance companies. I see that it's possibly pretty different. I'm obviously no ex- expert in these areas, but what's going to happen, Andy, if in the Bitcoin community, you're going to get a lot of what I call pointy stick questions because Bitcoiners dig pretty hard. So I hope you're prepared for that. I think it's going to sharpen you guys. And I think overall it's a good thing. And uh, let's continue down that vein. Dan, go ahead. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's been any discussion about or if you know if there'd be any like regulatory roadblocks around the idea of what if you have like a telehealth product where you could use like the lighting network to stream sats directly to a physician for maybe smaller uh, 
health problems that just require a consult and then maybe you're you know, writing a prescription um, after a quick video call? Is there anything like that that's been discussed? You know, not to date. We haven't discussed it. We've only used, you know, right now have had conversations around, you know, using Bitcoin as the collateral for, you know, the the, um, the cash to pay the doctors directly, given that, you know, most of these doctors don't even know what Bitcoin is. Um, you know, and the part of what we want to do is is create some awareness, right? So we can say, hey, we, you know, can we pay in Bitcoin or can do we pay in, in cash? And if, if we can... Um, expand that awareness or at least get them asking questions, um, then I think we will make a, a pretty significant headway. I think you know, the imp- important thing here is that we're u- working with primarily independent docs or we try to. So one of the things going on in our system right now is these hospital systems are gobbling up all of the you know, pediatricians and cardiologists and, and roping them into that, into that hospital system. And once you do that, the price of that procedure or that consult goes up by double, right? And so we're working with primarily independent docs, which tend to have, um, a, I, I think, a mentality that's similar to, to all of ours, which is, hey, we want to we want to operate on our own with a lot of uh, without the bureaucratic inter- intervention. And so I think we've got a group of docs that we work with that would be very open to, you know, receiving, you know, Bitcoin as a form of payment. And so we're going to try it out to, to see if they will be willing to do that, um, whether that we get uptake in that, um, we don't know, but you know, all these things start with, you know, a 1% uh, uptake and, and grow from there. Right. So, um, we're going to try it. We're going to attempt it. Shane, go ahead. Yeah. One quick thing. Um, and I looked into, MediShare and many of the others, when I was going through, you know, a, a need to look at other med, I left a company and uh, co- or the um, Cobra had ended and blah, 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 blah. You know, bottom line, I basically had to form a company just so I could get um, the right kind of insurance because mm-hmm. my daughter has some special needs. To, how, how does uh, pre-existing conditions co- come into play here with this plan? Yeah, sure. So um, pre-existing, it is if you have pre-existing, you're responsible for it for the first year, and then the community will start helping you with it in the second year and beyond. So it's will they'll help up to twenty five grand in the second year, fifty grand in the third year, and then a hundred grand in the fourth year and beyond. So, you know, just given it is a community, we say, hey, it's you know, everybody's got to pay their fair share, right? Um, and we figure if people are willing to pay for their pre existing conditions in the in the first year, then they've they've paid their fair share. They should be a, a valuable member of the community. So, um, that's the the one limitation on pre existing, and then we have a limitation on weight too. So, if you're three hundred pounds or more, if you're a male, then we ask you to, to come back to us when you're under 300 pounds. So that's the other limitation. A lot of these other plans, if I remember right, are like two years on pre-existing. So you're, you're definitely better in that regard. Again, our, our average age is 34. Um, our The average age of some of the health shares out there is closer to 44 or 45. So we've got a, a younger group of, of folks. And as I was walking around the conference you know, last week, it's which is a, a just generally younger, right? Like we're everybody there seemed to be between 27 and 45, right? It was a, it's a younger group of, of people and um, they self-select something new like this. Um, and as you get a little bit older, you get a little more risk averse. And so we just got a younger population of folks and, you know, we 
been running um, our existing platform for about a year and we've spent, I think, 26 or 27% of the total funds that have been contributed into the, to the community. And so the, the, the healthcare costs are, are super, super low. Um, and that's one of the, just the benefits of being a part of this, this community and, and the self-selective nature of what we're doing is we just got a lot of young, young folks, which is great. Peter, good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, Andy, really, really like, uh, really like what I'm hearing. Uh, uh, grew up in, in Western medicine. My, my father was a, was a pretty prominent uh, surgeon in the area that I lived. Um, and I have a couple of questions for you. And, and so these might be a little more hardball, but, you know, you just answer them. Great, bring it. Um, so I'm wondering, I, I don't think I heard really your story about, uh, you know, about Bitcoin and, and how you came to Bitcoin. And it sounded like maybe you were just beginning that journey. It seems to me like these uh, uh, physicians and hospitals are going to be, they're just like merchants. And um, they're going to be very interested in some of the... Uh, benefits of Bitcoin, instant settlement, no chargebacks, uh, you know, uh, 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 payment in in, uh, in in 10 minutes or whatever. Um, lots of different kinds of properties that Bitcoin brings. And I'm curious to know um, what your what what you think are the best properties of, of Bitcoin for this this business model uh, for yourself and kind of what your what your story is and, and where you're where you're at and where you're heading with with Bitcoin. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm for sure a newbie in Bitcoin. Although you know the the dumbest decision of my life was probably ten years ago when I was telling my business partner I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm just gonna put ten grand into Bitcoin and just see what happens because I was I was interested. And um, and he said this, you know, this is the dumbest decision you'll ever make. And and now it it, it was the dumbest decision I ever made because I decided not to do it. Um, so it piqued my interest back in the day. I tend to be a kind of a libertarian leaning. Um, person and, and, and just seeing the, the, the monetary system and the craziness of it all, I, I figured that this was going to be something that was going to be special. And I was a wuss 10 years ago when I didn't do it. But um, I kind of reengaged about a year ago. I've accumulated you know several Bitcoin over the last year. Um, I went to the Bitcoin conference. I've had several conversations with, with Jimmy um, around Bitcoin, but I am a, a, a rookie when it comes to, to Bitcoin. And you know, now that I know about uh, this, I will be tuning in more often so that I can I can learn more. Um, you know, as I express my business model to folks, and if there are others who say, "Hey, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that?" Man, I'd love the the input um, because a lot of this stuff I don't know. Uh, I don't know the best way to do this, and so, like I said, my first language is is healthcare. I know healthcare really really well, um, and so if I can. Find some folks who know Bitcoin really, really well. I think this is a really interesting, like I said, bedfellow because um, healthcare is a four trillion dollar, you know, industry in this country, um, and it's bigger than the GDPs of every country except China and Japan. And so, if we want, you know, widespread adoption of of Bitcoin usage, I think this is a really great place to start. Um, and I think we've got uh, minds in in healthcare that want to change things that are similar to the mindsets of folks in in Bitcoin, and who really want the government um, and big health insurance plans out of the middle of the the, the patient doctor relationship. So, um, I'm I'm more than I would love input from folks if if you hear the model and see you know really cool ads or you know really th things that I, I need to think about 
Um, but you know, we're launching this Bitcoin um, as collateral once I get to a thousand members um, who are interested because I, I need a thousand for viability. Um, and you can sign up if you're interested at crowdhealthbtc.com. It's just kind of a, a form there to say, hey, are you interested in hearing more about this? And once I get to a thousand people, you know, we're going to launch. It'll take me about 60 days to launch from there. So if anybody's interested, would love your input on that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd love more input from y'all since you are, you, you all are way more, uh, you know, educated on all this stuff than I am. Anything else, Peter? Uh, no, you, you answered that. Uh, you answered that very genuinely. I, I appreciate that. Um, you might want to look into, uh, I think another thing that the, the merchants, you know, all the, all the healthcare systems use, use the visa MasterCard. They all take credit cards, um, or at least a, a huge number of them do. And, that's another thing they get to avoid with with uh, with Bitcoin uh, settlement uh, is they don't have to pay those fees because it's outside of that system. Sure. So another, well, it's even worse than that. Out. Yeah, it's even worse than that, right? Because most of these hospital systems are billing their health plans through these electronic health records, and electronic health records are taking somewhere between six and ten percent of the revenue off the top. Um, and so six to 10% of our healthcare is, is just in transaction expenses. Um, and so, you know, right now we're using, you know, Visa and MasterCard, which is, you know, a percent and a half to two and a half percent, depending upon, you know, what you're using. Um, and so that, that knocks off a pretty good chunk, but I, I, I hear you, especially as I'm sitting at the Bitcoin conference and listening to, to Jack and others about what they're thinking about doing on the transaction side to, to, to take that down to almost nothing. It's a really interesting thing. And, you know, as I as I describe our business model and say, hey, we're getting significant discounts from docs, uh, people are like, oh, well, aren't docs pissed? And I'm like, actually, no, docs love this. Like all the docs want to get to a non-insurance based system because they hate insurance companies as much as as all of us do. Um, and so they're fired up about this. They're, they're, they're excited. They want to be involved. Um, and so this is, uh, if, if we can get to a, a, a Bitcoin based system, that'd be, be great. You know, I think there's probably a cash based system in between, but, um, you know, the, the doctors are fired up about this as, as much as we all are. So get all the doctors maybe on strike. And even if they want fiat, the, you know, it's really, the transaction fees are, I guess, basically almost nothing. But quick question I had, do you see any um, people you, I, I, this is just a thought that came out of my head. I don't even know if it makes sense, but people, do you see people possibly using this as a, as a way to supplement their insurance? Maybe they do have a insurance plan. It's just not a very good one, but it comes through their employer or something like that. Yeah, sure. So we've got a bunch of people that do that. So, you know, only thing we ask is you run it through your health insurance first, and then, you know, we'll help you with the rest. So if you got, you know, an eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars deductible, um, which many of these healthcare.gov plans have, then they're actually using us as, as almost like a, a supplement. Um, and so we, we've got a bunch of people who do that. But it's just while I'm on that topic, you know, it's, I, I went to healthcare.gov because I didn't know any better. Um, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, if, if you don't want health care, if you don't want the government involved in your health care, um, whoever's on the health care gov plans have got to get off. I mean, you are you are ultimately saying to the government, yes, I'm OK with you being involved in my health care and healthcare.gov is becoming just an expansion of Medicaid. Um, and so, you know. I was on, you know, Dave Smith the other day, and I, you know, his, his podcast is called a part of the problem. And I said, dude, you're a part of the 
problem if you're on healthcare.gov. And so I would just, you know, encourage anybody who's on healthcare.gov to, t- to take a second look at that. And whether it's crowd health or something else, um, you know, that's that's the government creeping into, um, you know, some part parts of the healthcare system that they have been absent from, at least from the insurance standpoint. So, um, you know, that would be one of my my uh, my ask from y'all is just kind of reconsider that. We're going to go with Ant, and then uh, I want to welcome Stuart up, and we'll go with Stuart after Ant. Go ahead, Ant. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Uh, I know y'all touched about um, touched on privacy a little bit earlier, but you know, talking about the health records, that's always the one thing that gets me. Like, you know, tying just like the concept of like tying health records or PII, you know, to to Bitcoin, and you know, maybe you can get into that a little bit. Just kind of explain how the how these records are handled, like. What if I want to hack it, for example, just like really 10,000 foot view, you know, like what if I want to hack the, the, you know, these records, like how does that work? I mean, what are y'all doing to protect? Like if I sign up with you all and I'm a part of the community, but then I'm going and getting like, you know, my broken leg fixed. Like, how is that being protected? Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty stringent HIPAA rules um, that we have to follow or else we get find about $50,000 each um, violation. Um, so it's a pretty serious, you know, thing internally. And I'm, I'm happy to, you know, have our, our COO talk to you about it, but I'm, you know, we, we've got some pretty stringent, um, you know, security measures on all of our, our computers and, and backend and things like that. And then we never connect your account to your Bitcoin account within our system. So there's no, you know, hacking of, of your, your Bitcoin that's, you know, Im- impossible to do. And then when we go out and we ask for funds from, from people to help you with your, you know, heart surgery or your, you know, knee replacement or whatever it is, we, we never say your name. Um, we, we, we say we have a member in, Texas, who's getting a knee replacement, you know, are you up for, for doing that? Um, are you up for, um, you know, funding that? So that's kind of a, a key component of keeping privacy too. So we're, we're pretty strict on the, the hip laws and, um, whether I, I agree with them or, or not, some of them are, are ridiculous. Um, but they do require pretty, pretty stringent securities, you know, security processes. Um, you know, let me, one, one, it does remind me, one of the things that folks might be asking is like, okay, so basically what you're doing is you're, you're crowdfunding some of these big expenses. Like why would anybody give to the Schoonover's, you know, broken arm? That's not like this emotional pull that you'll get on some of these other crowdfunding uh, sites where they've got cancer and they've got a hundred thousand dollars of healthcare expenses racked up. What we do have internally, we have a, a reputation score. So if you're someone who's been asked and you continue to say no 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 then you have a reputation score that says this person is you know a, a tightwad won't give to anybody and so if you have a health if that person has a healthcare expense and goes and asks we actually do tell you their reputation score so you know we'll tell you that this person gives 20% of the time and so the probability that he will get his healthcare costs funded is very, very low. So there's a self-policing um, reciprocity engine internally that kind of drives most of that that giving. Um, and that voluntary piece is really, really important to us because it does uh, um, keep us from some of the regulatory requirements of, of health insurance, right? So if you have your money, you're deciding whether or not you want to give it. It's really hard for regulatory agencies to say, hey, your health insurance. And if they were to come and say your health insurance, then it just makes our our model, um, you know, it just doesn't work um, because of all just the regulatory 
requirement. So um, that's one of the, the things I wanted to point out there. That reputation score is pretty key to, to making it work. So we've got about 98% of the people who've, who've a- we've asked have said yes because of that reciprocity engine. What an interesting concept. It's almost like a meritocratic system kind of like bitcoin imagine that that's that's kind of fascinating um we have well not only that right it's like it's a decentralized risk pool right like there's no no centralized risk pool we've got thousands of accounts with thousands of dollars in it and those thousands of accounts can you know in their own way say yes or no to whether they want to uh to, to fund something so um it is it is we are trying to decentralize as much as, as, as possible, you know, in the kind of the, the spirit of, of what you all believe in is that decentralized is, is significantly better than anything centralized. So we're, we're trying to, to push that direction. Interesting. All right. So we've got Stuart Lackey. Uh, good morning, Stuart. Welcome. Why don't you give Stuart's got a, a background according to his bios, a uh, career spent in the healthcare startup world. So if you want, give us maybe a minute on your background and then uh, ask your question or add your thoughts here. Alex, thank you. Sorry, we didn't connect in Miami. I was down there for the conference. So uh, maybe maybe sometime soon. Uh, Andy, I love the concept. I, I reside in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been a healthcare startup. Uh, veteran for about 20 years and found Bitcoin in 2016. And um, actually, uh, during my time in healthcare, predominantly spent in surgical device startups and neurosurgery and orthopedic spine, I went back and got a, a master's degree in healthcare informatics because I, I wanted to better understand the data side of healthcare and, and more of the business side. And so through all that, I, I too got a, a really hard understanding and bringing new devices to market on the economics and, and just the largesse of the $4 trillion that we now spend in the U.S. on healthcare, And oh, by the way, we have some of the poorest outcomes in the developed world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've written, I've written actually extensively on the subject and would love to talk to you more offline about what you guys are doing. I think it's fantastic. And, and I think there may be some opportunities to, uh, to collaborate on some things, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, the, the crowd sharing uh, opportunity uh, is a, is long overdue. Um, I think you know the further that we have what I would call the patient customer has gotten away from the provider, whether that be a clinician or the or the facility, we've gone from a society folks from asking how much to now how much is my copay, and so. Much of the inflation, I mean, we talk about just general, you know, inflation in, in just the regular economy. Healthcare is actually worse. And then, when, again, when you kind of pile on those bad outcomes uh, and the fact that we really don't know where our healthcare dollars are being spent and why things cost so much. Um, Andy, you mentioned, you know, the, your example of being able to find a $40,000, uh, you know, scenario where, for, a, for a heart patient. Um, a lot of people don't know you can go on a lot of websites that that curate uh, things like just MRI scans, where if you file through insurance, it would cost, you know, in the thousands of dollars. But most people don't realize in, in a major city they could get an MRI done uh, for five hundred dollars in, mm-hmm. in some some cases or even less. And so um, just the transparency that healthcare in the U.S. has lacked uh, and the fact that we've capitalized the industry with the Affordable Care Act and the High Tech Act with EMR records, basically created just an explosion of disparate data silos. Someone had a question about, um, you know, health data. Um, it is absolutely spread across multiple EMR platforms. And to a large extent, these, these platforms don't talk to each other. So it's a mess clinically. It's a mess economically. And things like 
uh, Andy, what you're creating and what you're uh, trying to do specifically with the Bitcoin um, piece of this is just fantastic. And I applaud you. And, and again, we'd love to talk offline with you. So thank you for the line. Yeah, man, love that. I, yeah, I'll give you a quick example. We, we had a member in Charlottesville, Virginia, who, you know, I'm, I'm a UVA grad, under undergrad um, in Charlotte and UVA hospital system owns Charlottesville, Virginia. Every radiology clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia is owned by UVA health system. And therefore, they can charge twenty seven hundred dollars for an MRI of your ankle. Without yep. contrast, for those who are you know healthcare, right. Um, right. you know, and and so our member called us and said, "Hey, you know, I, I this is my only option." And I said, "Okay, well, can we do a little bit of work?" And you know, within thirty minutes, I found a place that was fifteen miles away that was five hundred dollars. And so I said, "Hey, would you mind traveling fifteen miles for five hundred bucks?" And they're like, "Absolutely, to save twenty two hundred. Right. And you know, one of the beauties of this is they they truly believe they're a part of a community that you know, if I do. My, my deed, then, uh, you know, I, by traveling 15 miles, then I can help the community, um, which I think is, you know, kind of a key component of this. I know that there is a kind of a, a self-sovereignty mindset within the Bitcoin community. But man, I'm, 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 uh, I'm sitting there in Miami. I, I went to the uh, Thank God for Bitcoin pre-conference and there's a serious community here. And what if we had a community of Bitcoiners who would only be sharing their healthcare expenses with, with other Bitcoiners using Bitcoin as the collateral, which they can, they can, they can pay for these healthcare expenses while creating equity, as opposed to, you know, trashing dollars into a health insurance plan. I think we've got something that could be pretty interesting to this community of folks. And there is an affinity for each other, right? And if you have an affinity for each other, you don't try to suck everything out of the system that you can, you actually try to keep the system healthy, which is totally different than what we have in our current health insurance system, right? Like we th- we know we're getting screwed by our health insurance companies, and therefore we try to suck as much value out of the healthcare system as possible. And that is one of the primary reasons why healthcare costs go up. Um, we're right totally changing that dynamic, and I'm pretty excited by you know an affinity group of, of Bitcoiners who are who are all in it together. Um, it could be a, a, a really interesting scenario. Yeah, what a fascinating uh, discussion we've had so far. We're going to continue this in just a second. We're going to hit some quick announcements, and then Stuart, if you want to continue there, you can. We'll go with Shane and Matt after that. But you've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every single day, Monday through Friday. We start at seven a.m. Pacific. Uh, 10 a.m. Eastern, we roll for about two hours. We talk about all things Bitcoin. This is the place to get your morning news in Bitcoin. It's becoming a preferred hangout for some of the smartest people in Bitcoin to just come talk about what's going on. Uh, We break a lot of news here, a lot of new uh, sort of innovative things that are happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem, like what Andy's talking about. We do that here. This is also a podcast that's up on Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can throw a follow to myself or Swan Bitcoin to be notified of when those drop. Um, A couple of cool things coming up here in the future. The Pacific Bitcoin Conference um, has just been announced, um, and we're going to be working, I believe, in collaboration with Bitcoin Mag. I think that's those are still uh, discussions on the way, et cetera. But we're, we're going to do it regardless, September 29th and 30th. Um, it is going to be a Bitcoin-only conference. Uh, so everybody, anybody who's interested in Bitcoin is welcome. I work with Swan Private. If you're interested in Swan, shoot me a DM. Happy to help you out if you are. By the way, we we do take customers globally. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, whether it's South America, North America, the MENA region, Europe, Asia, et cetera. Um, 
we can help you. Also, if you are a business owner, you want to put Bitcoin on your balance sheet. Swan Bitcoin is one of the fastest onboarding times in the entire industry. We're doing it typically in less than a week. Some accounts are approved in as short as 48 hours. One last thing. Swan Signal Live tomorrow with Max Kaiser and Simon Dixon. It's going to that show is going to start two hours after we wrap our normal show. Go ahead, Stuart. What were you saying just a minute ago, if you recall? No, one more thing, Andy. The the incentive dis, in, uh, structure within the U.S. healthcare system, right? It's just absolutely broken. And uh, what this what this and I think there's some there's some things that um, that I would love to talk to you about does incentivize more of a wellness. Um, preventative mindset, right? That we do, if you look at the contribution factors, uh, factors to things like longevity, whether you and I and everyone on this call is going to live a longer life or not, uh, there's been numerous studies that behavior uh, makes up the lion's share of the reason why you and I, you or I would uh, live longer or not, not healthcare, right? So there's a lot of things that we can do as a community, as a, as a country, as a world, preventatively. And we all know what they are, right? Eat better, exercise, don't smoke, drink as little as possible. Amazingly, those things have the impact on things like longevity. So mm-hmm. I think when you, when you have a dependent or a, or a, a mutually aligned uh, group like this, uh, you start thinking about those things even more to your point. So mm-hmm. uh, that's all I have. Again, love to connect offline. Thank you for, uh, for your contribution. Appreciate it. Yeah, Stuart, DM me. I'd love to love to continue the conversation. Shane, go ahead. Yeah, real quick, Andy. I think some of the you know more engaged and and um, Bitcoiners that have been in it for a long time, custody is is a big issue. And I think obviously by necessity, you know, this needs to probably be a custodial environment. But I'm just curious. Um, I know that I think your website says a well respected. Custodian, while I'm not going to ask you to tell me who it is, you know, I am curious if you have in place some type of a multi-sig environment and have you thought about proof of reserves or something so that you can, you know, make your members that are hardcore Bitcoiners feel really comfortable with regards to the security of the Bitcoin that, that's uh, being, basically being put into their account? Yeah, I mean the the company that we're working with, or that is most likely going to be our our partner, is is totally keyed in on this. And again, being kind of a new to the Bitcoin space, I didn't realize until I have some of these conversations about you know the the, the kind of the, the the high interest in ensuring that um, you know you hear no keys, no coins, no keys, no cheese, right? Like I I get it, and so it is a multi sig environment where um, you know right now. It, it looks like you'll have a key, we'll have a key and, and the custodian will have a key or the, the financing company will have a key. And so, um, and then a, an agreement when you sign up that says, Hey, listen, um, you, you, you can leave at any time. And when, when you leave, we will, um, give the keys to you. So it's yours. Um, but it has to be, we have to figure out a way to say minus what is on the credit facility. Right. So let's just say you've got, $10,000 worth of Bitcoin in, in your multi-sig storage and and you have a $5,000 uh, credit facility against that because we've used that, then there's got to be a way for us to 
liquidate at least a part of that Bitcoin to get that back. If you want to stay with us forever, then great. Or if you want to you know, pay us in, in cash so that you don't have to sell the Bitcoin to pay off that credit facility, that's the second option. But there needs to be an option when you leave to pay off that credit facility um, because it is tied directly to Bitcoin as as the collateral. So um, we're, we have an attorney currently, you know, drawing that up and learning from some of the other kind of collateral agreements that we're seeing in, in the industry. Um, and then our financing partner is helping with with that as well. So um, I can assure you that we've got somebody on the, you know, ex- exclusively Bitcoin, you know, side who's, who's helping us think through some of these issues. Great. So quick follow-up if I can, um, you know, presumably if you're taking cash, if you will, from your members and converting that to Bitcoin, you know, you're having to buy that Bitcoin, uh, one way or another. I'm just curious if you plan on, or if you've already established a relationship with, um, you know, someone to do that. And is that, you know, can you share, is that a Bitcoin only company? Uh, I know another thing that's very near and dear to many Bitcoiners, me included, is to try to stay away from, uh, you know, organizations that are, uh, among other things, not focused, right? Wholly on Bitcoin. It's easy to argue that a company that's not wholly um, focused on Bitcoin, you know, doesn't have our best interest at heart. Yeah, sure. Um, I can't say that it is Bitcoin only. If if there is a vendor out there that someone can recommend to me that is Bitcoin only that can do the capabilities that I've described, I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, and so, you know, I've 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 run our vendors by Jimmy um, again, who's uh, you know probably my closest friend within the the Bitcoin community, um, and he is. Um, directed me to the the appropriate people that he would feel comfortable that his bitcoin is 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 safe so um but if there's any other vendors out there that people would like to to suggest um crowd join crowd health is our company uh twitter uh handle you can dm us there or schoonover andy at schoonover andy uh, is mine Um, either way is fine and we'd love to have those conversations All right, we're going to go with Matt here in just a second. But before we do, if you're out in the audience, you have questions for Andy, um, you're welcome to come up. You can ask your question live if you like. We'll be kind to you, I promise. If you'd prefer to put it into a text, we do have a Telegram group for Cafe Bitcoin. There should be a link somewhere in the nest where you can get information on how to join that group if you want to do so. You're welcome to ask your question in there. The team is continually feeding me those questions so we can just uh, ask the question directly. Go ahead, Matt. Hey, thanks, Alex. Uh, thanks for taking the time with us, Andy. Um, fellow Cavalier here, too. My sounds like my wife and I might have been in Charlottesville around the same time as you, perhaps, but uh, that's hilarious, small world. Um, I had a... Um, it sounds like I might have been doing more or less what your your company's uh, 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 doing now. Uh, long story short, we, we put aside... My attorneys will call you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not, uh, no, as, as on a pleb level. So, like, long story short, my wife and I put aside a, 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 a an amount of Bitcoin to just literally pay for our health expenses over time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, straight out of our own pocket. You know, don't forget forget uh, government coverage, forget employee coverage, especially as you're moving from job to job. And then mm-hmm. over time, wow, that Bitcoin uh, more than covers any. Uh, health expenses. Um, can you, can you talk about like, 
the the one thing that we lack is the tax advantage of using a service like your company. So can can you perhaps uh, touch on some of the pros and cons of of using the you know your services from a tax advantage? Yeah. So I mean, I think that you know a lot of what we we are doing looks like an HSA, right? You, you put money into an account, you can use that account to to pay for your your healthcare, and and the thing we're adding to that is. We're asking, also asking you to use that account to help others with with their healthcare, right? Um, unfortunately, we don't get the the tax advantages of of the HSA. However, we are having conversations with a number of folks um, on the federal level to to change that. There are some bills coming up that will allow, um, or they're going to try to allow HSAs um, f- without having to have a health insurance plan. So right now, to have an H- HSA, you have to have a high deductible health plan um, to get to have the the money going into your HSA be tax deductible. There are a number of folks on the Hill that want to eliminate that need for the high deductible health plan, which would make our model uh, tax efficient. Um, right now, it is all post tax dollars that that you are using uh, for this, so it's it's not the most tax efficient uh, you know thing as at this point, but. You know, I would say the the other side of that coin, right, is is that we're also saving you fifty to seventy percent off of your health care expenses, and so um, we're we're working with the some of the federal you know folks on in the Senate specifically to help us with this, but it's not the most tax efficient feature. Great, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Wish I had a better answer for you. No, no, no. Yeah, that. I mean, there, there. Yeah, Bitcoin's still such a brand new asset. We're all dealing with the tax implications. There's no. Yeah, it's it, it's coming, obviously, in in many ways, but uh, you know, just takes time. I mean, one of the the reasons why we've been, um, you know, Jimmy mentioned, you know, putting Bitcoin into a to a multi sig. Um, you know, storage and then leaving it there is the, the transaction costs go down significantly. And then, you know, buying and selling creates, you know, lots of tax consequences to that. Um, so we're, we're kind of working through that. Yeah. Anyone who's, anyone who's been trying to do this on their own, you know, over the years, all of a sudden you become quite, you have to become your own de facto tax and account expert and so any any of these services that are helping me and 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 plebs like me take take the burden off and let someone else handle the the day-to-day that's nice and the other thing is is this just like andy said you know this is an evolving thing over time as bitcoin becomes more and more important in the sort of financial ecosystem, I think you're going to continue to see pushes for legislation that makes it more favorable over time. Good guy. Did you have a question or a thought? Yeah, um, just a thought. So uh, and then a question. So for Andy, I think ultimately it's the insurances that are necessary more than anything else. So looking Mm -hmm. at like an insurance pool or looking at your provider, uh, if they have those insurances or even just getting a single investor to put a large sum of money aside in a way that's beneficial. Um, 
I, because we have seen even companies like on, on uh, unchained and and these send send people's bitcoin out by mistake and you know bugs on some of these networks and there's mm-hmm. a lot of exploitation going forward we we call it these honeypots right when we see these large sums of bitcoin in in these singular funds they become heavily targeted um so yeah the insurances ultimately are the best solution in my mind from what i've seen uh swan i think could provide some of the the onboarding if you're looking to just do bitcoin only um, but my question is specifically in regards to people outside of the U.S. So as a Canadian citizen who recently spent $1.4 million on medical expenses after a motorcycle accident, um, you know, having been in and out of the hospital for three years, is there any intent or is there any ideas of bringing this to Bitcoiners and some of these these marketplaces that have that health insurance from the government and provide maybe some of those living expenses or those other types of benefits yeah, other than the United States, Canada has been the kind of the number two place that people have reached out from asking, given that your your healthcare system is in shambles um, as as well for, for different reasons. But um, right now we're requiring a, a U.S. Uh, mailing address, um, and we are going to look at some point here in the near future of going international. So um we have to, you know, a lot of regulatory stuff to work through, but we absolutely are looking at doing that. And Canada probably would be our our first stop. You know, just a quick thought there is that this is obviously a new thing, right? This is I, I suspect we're going to see all kinds of business ecosystems popping up around Bitcoin. Um, and as Andy's model, for example, if it turns out it works really well, you're going to see copycats pop up in different jurisdictions, et cetera. Obviously, every jurisdiction is going to have its own regulations and laws. Uh, but um, it's really interesting to see how all of this is progressing. Don't know who's next, Shane or D. Hey, just real quick, I'll go. Um, I'm, I'm glad you answered the uh, question, or Good Guy Brock brought it up about Canada because that was one of the ones that was mentioned. Um, on our Telegram group. The other one is, and Andy, I don't know if if there's a short and a long uh, version of explaining this, but one of the other questions from Nate on our Telegram group was, how do you, you know, after someone's paid their $500 out of pocket, how do you determine or select the person to ask to cover the rest of the bill? Is it spread out? Is it, you know, is there some kind of a algorithm that does it? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, in our database, we we know what percentage of your contributions you've actually given, and then it's sorted by that. So we keep everybody at the same percentage of of contribution. So let's just say that, you know, I've given twenty eight percent of what I've contributed into my account thus far, and somebody else has given, you know, twenty five percent of what they've given. We will bring that person up to twenty eight percent, and we will continue to ask until they get to 28% until they say yes. Right. So it's, it's basically, um, just, just, uh, sorted by percentage of contribution that you've given to keep everybody, you know, equitable. Uh, so no, nobody will have given 5% of their contribution while another person has given 85%. It's, you know, within, sense. yeah. Yeah. Shane, did you ask that question off the top of your head, or was that coming from Telegram? No, yeah, it was. Te- it was coming from Telegram. Okay, right on. I just wanted to acknowledge that came from Nate Clem. That was the person yep. that was asking that question. Go ahead, D. 
Yeah, just a quick question. I mean, I'm here in Canada as well, um, more so in Ontario rather than Vancouver, where good guys from. But um, uh, just in terms of like paying for hospital stuff, I mean, I haven't had an issue. You know, we have a, a really nice, you know, supposedly system up here that kind of pays the bills. So I was just curious what or why good guy was paying so much for uh, surgery and whatnot. But that's obviously uh, off topic. So uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry for that. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm always overinsured, so I was good. But uh, okay. yeah. Okay, and then just one for Andy. Um, I was just wondering if uh, decentralized IDs play a role in any of this, or uh, what your thoughts were with that stuff. I'm gonna go back to my Bitcoin ignorance, and I don't even know what that means. So <laughs> if you can no explain it to me. No, it was just like um, you know you have an identity tied to um, you, so you you kind of present the information to the doctor instead of the doctor having all that information um so it's like mm -hmm. here here's kind of like my profile and this is what i've done in the past or you know you know some doctors signed off on this or whatnot but just something to think about or look at i just didn't know if you had any thoughts on it yeah no it's interesting yeah andy if you hang out with bitcoiners you're going to find that a lot of these guys are very much on the cutting edge of where privacy <clears throat> kind of nexusing what technology is going. So this entire concept of centralized ID basically means that you own all of your information instead of somebody else owning it in a centralized honeypot that hackers can hit and take all your info because that's become like a ridiculous problem um, that mm -hmm. we're dealing with sort of across the board there. Yeah, and seriously, if, if there's somebody out there that really wants to help us think through this, you know, reach out to us because, um, you know, this is the insight that we that we need. Healthcare has not typically been cutting edge on this kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, I really think it would be a pretty, pretty significant step for us to be able to do some of the things that you guys are talking about in a differentiator versus, you know, the, the United Healthcare's of the world. Um, so, you know, please reach out to me because I'd love to have that conversation. Yep, 100%. Okay, lots of hands going up, which means we've struck a nerve here. Important. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask a quick question from Telegram, and then we're going to go with Good Guy, and I think Shane and Ant, and then we're going to wrap the show. Um, Andy, we'll give you uh, a, a moment to make final comments, but this is coming from a guy by the name of Andy Garner uh, in Telegram. He's asking what happens to people who are in your system when they turn 65. Yeah, right now they're going to Medicare. Um, you know, we're that's another service line that we're looking at is can we provide services to those folks? And in fact, the federal government um, has pretty significant restrictions on doctors um, for taking cash payment for stuff that is paid for by Medicare. And so while it is not um, illegal for them to take cash, they have to ensure that that person is not on Medicare um, and they are most of the time not willing to take that step. And so if you're over 65, we have a big percentage of the docs not wanting to take cash. And that is a key component of our system because we're getting, like I said, 40, 50, 60% discounts because of, of Take them taking cash as opposed to waiting on a health insurance plan to pay them. So um, we're trying to work through that. Um, but, you know, stay tuned on that one. Just one more example of government being involved in stuff and screwing it up. Good guy. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I think this is all very cool and, and very necessary in places like uh, the U.S. I think this this kind of crowdsource solution is, is very cool. I think one of the, the biggest things you could do as a company or individuals right now could do 
is ask to be part of those preferred member programs or those preferred rate programs. As a lot of us know, these insurance companies negotiate predetermined rates with a lot of these providers, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical companies, the, the pharmacies themselves, so that the price that we're quoted as individuals is often you know, a third of the price that the insurance company is willing to pay. Um, but often mm -hmm. now, if you look at these corporations and these businesses, and this is something people listening can go do today, Go walk into your local pharmacy, your grocery store, and ask about their preferred rate program. Ask about their preferred member program. Often you just have to sign a document, and this allows you to get some of those more competitive rates. But this documentation process, this thought process, this education, that's the issue, getting that information to a lot of these consumers. So I think as a, as a company, you could kind of champion that, helping people sign up with these different companies in these different regions for those preferred prices, uh, to a great benefit. Yeah. So I, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Like we think health plans do a really great job negotiating. And in fact, um, you know, they don't, um, and we, we as individuals have significantly more negotiating power against a hospital system than United healthcare does, which is the seventh largest company on the planet. And so they were like, why does that make sense? Right. We have two hospital systems in here in, in Austin, um, United is basically negotiating against a duopoly. If they lose Ascension, you know, then they lose everybody in Austin because everybody wants to go to either Ascension or St. David's. And so they don't have a whole lot of negotiating power. And by the way, they don't really want to negotiate because another thing, another child of Obamacare is that they are um, maxed out at the amount of profit that they can take um, as a percentage of premium. So if you have a thousand dollar premium, they're maxed out at $150 of profit. And so outside looking in, people are like, Oh, that's great. That's beautiful. They can't make so much money. But as we all know, there are profit seeking entities. And so the only way of getting more profit is your premium has to go up. And so they are actually incentivized. Your health insurance plan is incentivized for your premium to go up. And so when you have your, you know, buyer of healthcare, which is the the health insurance company, and the seller of healthcare, which is these big hospital systems, all wanting the price to go up, guess what? The price goes up, right? And so if if we can negotiate as an individual, we are much much better off. If you think about a huge expense, let's just say we had a woman who had a brain hemorrhage, it was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bill. Uh, the hospital system looked at her and said, "Okay, we know you're not going to be able to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars." We'll negotiate with you, right? And we negotiated that bill down to you know almost nothing. Where you know United Healthcare would have to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars for that bill. So we have much much more negotiating power as individuals. And so that's you know one of the things I would I'd like to leave with the audience. If if you're ever in a place where you have a big healthcare bill, they have to negotiate with you by federal law. Universal Commercial Code, federal law, it's called, called open contract law. If you provide a service without a pre-negotiated rate, you have to negotiate a reasonable rate. And hospitals don't want to do the work to give you a reasonable rate, so they are willing to negotiate 99 times out of 100. So just something for people, regardless of whether you're on crowd health, to know is definitely negotiate with that hospital because they will negotiate and they're actually required by law to do so. Wow. Didn't know that. Great info. Okay. We're going to go with Shane Ant, and then Andy, we're going to give you a couple minutes to uh, give some closing comments. Shane, go ahead. I'll just, I'll just say uh, thanks Andy for coming on. My, the question I was going to ask has already been addressed. So this has been fascinating. I'm looking forward to watching how this uh, progresses. 
Great, thanks. Hey, uh, I had to step away for a minute earlier. So if this was asked, you know, feel free to skip it. But um, one question that I had, uh, does the crowd health uh, platform use, you know, AI or any kind of modeling to predict which users will, you know, uh, necessarily avail themselves of these services more than others? Um, meaning like who is our, our, our highest utilization members? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like, you know, I think with the current system, you know, it's, you know, if you, I may be wrong, I don't really know what I'm talking about here, but it feels like you're, if you do the, you know, you're using it a lot, your rates may potentially be different, you know, or at least that's the concern with systems like these. So I was just wondering if you had any kind of like predictive modeling built into the platform. And if so, what is it for? Yeah, there's, it's interesting. There's, there's companies out there that will, if, if I have a certain set of information from you, I can, they can tell me, it's kind of scary, you know, what kind of book you bought at Barnes and Noble. Um, and, and then use that data to model your kind of risk factor. Um, we have decided not to do that for privacy reasons. Um, and so we are looking more at general demographics. So as I mentioned, you know, average customer is 34. Um, the average customer's BMI is, you know, four to five points lower than the, the national average. And so, you know, we feel very, very comfortable with kind of the actuarial viability of this based upon those demographics, which is, you know, somebody mentioned earlier um, is, you know, 80% of the probability is just knowing those, those general demographics. Um, so, you know, and we have some other things too, where we know that we've got a lot of women in their thirties, right. Who are more likely to have babies. And so we do a little bit of modeling on that just in terms of, we know the percentage of the population that are having babies at this time. And so we do do some modeling there, but you know, we, we have not done serious AI in kind of the name of protecting privacy of our customers. I like that a lot. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate that answer. Yeah. That's really great. Um, Annie, really appreciate you coming. Appreciate you coming on. Um, would love to hear more as you guys progress and see how things are going. Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I'm just I'm thankful for again your 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 grace for me being kind of new to the Bitcoin community. It's one of the things I love about y'all is willingness to to educate, and I think that's going to be just a, a huge characteristic or kind of component of of creating mass adoption of of Bitcoin across the the world, right? And so I'm so appreciative of that and. Um, you know, again, if, if you're you know considering any kind of healthcare coverage, I'd, I'd love for you to go to joincrowdhealth.com, or if you will take a look at our our Bitcoin um, strategy, it's crowdhealthbtc.com. If you're at all interested, sign up. Let us know. Once we get to a thousand, we'll reach back out to you and give some more details and mechanics of how it all works. And man, if if anybody has any other ideas, I'm I'm open to them. Um, you know, we're hiring folks on our team. Um, we're going to raise a new round of a VC here in the next few months. So we've got some, some opportunities. So if anybody's interested in this, um, we'd love for y'all to, to consider joining us. So really, really appreciate the time. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I've learned a lot and I know a lot of people listening have as well. Um, I personally, and I'm sure other Bitcoiners do as, as well, appreciate your openness and, um, your willingness to learn about Bitcoin and the ways you can integrate it. Um, you're going to find that as you continue to work with Bitcoiners, some of these people are incredibly intelligent, um, and they're also all truth. They're all truth seekers. You know, they appreciate people who can come to the table and say, "Look, I don't know about this particular thing. Please teach me," because um, we're all about that. 
So mm-hmm. thank you for your time today. It's been really cool. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours. We talk about all things Bitcoin. It is the place to get your morning news in Bitcoin. It's also becoming a preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin. People just drop by, tell us what's going on. It is a podcast. It is up on Spotify. It's up on Apple. You can throw me a follow or throw Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. We want to thank everybody for being here. To all the listeners, if you're new to this space, this space is for you to come and learn about Bitcoin. It's a safe place to do that. You can come up and ask questions. I promise we will be kind to you. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, Bitcoin Magazine, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, my producer, Jacob Pope. To all the speakers who spend your time every day doing this, educating people on Bitcoin, really appreciate you guys. Throw these guys a follow. They're awesome. My name is Alex Stanzik. I am your host. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you want to know about Swan, shoot me a DM. Happy to help you there as well. And finally, get on the mission, guys. If you don't know what that means, hang out in this space. You will figure it out. I love all of you. Everybody go out there. Have a great day. Crush it. Crush it.